welcome to the Think MHK podcast presented by the Manhattan Area Chamber of Commerce. On this podcast, you will hear about a variety of local matters pertaining to the business community. You also hear from local business owners to hear their story and gain valuable business insights. Thanks for tuning in today. With me for today's session is Darren Solden, Director of Economic Development for the Chamber. Hey, Darren. Hey, Jason. Great to be here. You know, Darren, I'm a little intimidated uh, by this group that's here today. Of course, we have our normal producer, Dave Lewis, uh, with us, uh, but we also have Mike Matson. These are two broadcast legends. Uh, of course, I am a former journalist, but I'm of the print variety, which most of you probably say, yeah, we can tell. But uh, it's a little intimidating to be in a broadcast studio with two gentlemen who are as great at broadcasters as they are. But with us is Mike Matson, who is here today. Uh, as our chairman of the Business Advocacy Committee. Mike, thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Jason. And, and I, I think I need to correct your uh, your characterization. There's one broadcast legend with us, Dave Lewis. Oh. I see some of the old uh, pictures and Fair some enough. of the old videos. And it, and it was a great start to my career. So speaking of that, you are uh, with Kansas Farm Bureau. Yes. So talk about your role with Farm Bureau. How did you end up there and, and what Farm Bureau does in Manhattan? Sure. Well, let me just start by talking about the organization. It is, uh, at its core, a, a family farmer rancher advocacy organization. We've been around since 1919. We started at a time in Kansas when farmers and ranchers were uh, in the majority right? And we're trying to figure out how they would fit within the business community, trying to figure out how they would fit within public policy realms. And so they organized and became what is today Kansas Farm Bureau, which is, we describe it as a nonprofit family farmer rancher advocacy organization. If you think about an industry trade group, we're a full service turnkey trade group and our membership is is uh, family farmers and ranchers. I've been, this is my second time around with Farm Bureau. I've, I've been there in the last two decades uh, twice, about 15 years. The first time I managed communications for the organization. About 10 years ago, I had the opportunity to move on to another component of my career uh, dealing with leadership development, did that for five years, and then came back, had a great conversation with our CEO and uh, my colleague and friend, Terry Holdren, who was talking a little bit about the future and what he wanted to do with that organization, and so he brought me back to manage our foundation. So we have a a philanthropic component of our uh, system that I manage on a daily basis. Uh, A couple of years ago, I managed our organization's strategic planning, statewide uh, sort of uh, effort, as you can imagine, dealing with uh, what's the future, right? What what does the organization need to do to position itself to be successful on behalf of its membership in the future? And of course, Farm Bureau has the large facility on the north side of town and still maintains a pretty sizable presence there. Yeah, and it's probably important to point out that that we are we're very unique uh, in in terms of our structure. We the farm organization came first, right? And one of the things that the farmers and ranchers that belonged to the organization did a hundred years ago was realize that there's some risk involved with this work, and so they they started an insurance company, right? And that has then grown into something today that is based in West Des Moines, Iowa. It's called Farm Bureau Financial Services. And we partner with them. So I, I work for a nonprofit family farmer rancher trade group, but we are connected at the hip with a for-profit financial services and insurance company. And and both of those entities are involved, or we're housed at the big building on the northwest end of town. Uh, the 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 for-profit side. Let me talk about that for a second. There's about 300 people that are employed out there, and they're 
their flow chart ends in West Des Moines, Iowa, but there are managers and there are people involved who make the decisions on the ground in Manhattan. We call it the Manhattan, or West Des Moines calls it the Manhattan Regional Office, and there's a whole component of their work that, that, that gets done out there. And so between the two between the two sides of Farm Bureau, nonprofit and for-profit, we employ probably close to 350, 400 people out there. So still a large employer in Manhattan. Right. Obviously. And, and also, there are a number of other employers who who lease space at the facility. So uh, Farm Bureau is certainly very important to the economic fortune of this community. Yeah, we, we, we and, and we take that very seriously, right? That's one of the reasons that, that I'm involved, uh, and, and my, my colleague and boss, Terry Holdren, is involved. He serves on the, the chamber board. We, we recognize that that we want to be good community partners. And the way we do that is to get involved in the community, right? And, and so that leads to our service in things like the Manhattan Area Chamber of Commerce and other systems around town. So a little bit about yourself. You have some history in policy and, and working in government. Yeah, I, I, I was actually born in Manhattan. Dad was a K-Stater. Uh, he graduated in the Bob Boozer era. And uh, when, when, when he graduated with a degree in agronomy, we went home to our family farm in Rooks County, north of Hayes. We did that for six or eight years. Dad would tell the story of sitting on the tractor, hearing a voice tell him it's time to do something else. He, he grew weary with the debt involved with farming. And so he and mom had the conversation and sold the farm, used that for a, to pay for a graduate degree in education. And we moved to Wichita to become, uh, he became a school teacher. So, so my, I born in Manhattan, raised in Brooks County in Wichita. My wife and I moved back here in uh, 1998, and so we've been back in Manhattan since then. Professionally, my my career has basically been three components. Uh, journalism, I covered politics and government for a television station and statewide radio news network based in Topeka that morphed into actual policy and government work when I had the great good fortune to go to work for Bill Graves when he was running for governor in 1994 served as the governor's message guy, wrote his speeches, press secretary, communications. Uh, we got him reelected in 1998. In Kansas, governors can serve two terms. And so after reelection, those of us on the senior staff started looking for work. And as, as often happens in life, it was I knew some people at Farm Bureau. They had some opportunities, and that led to me coming back here. And it was at the time my wife was living and working here in Manhattan. She was an administrator at K-State. I was in Topeka. And when we decided to get married, well, where are we going to live, Manhattan or Topeka? That conversation lasted about five seconds. It was a no-brainer. Of course, we're going to live in Manhattan. And so we've been here ever since. So as someone who has been in policy for a number of years, you've seen, I'm sure, a lot of changes. Uh, tell me some things about the process that you like, and tell me some of the parts that you wish maybe were different. Well, I, th I think what I love about the, the, the concept, the notion of, of policy, of developing policy and moving ideas through government is, the, is it is exactly what the Founding Fathers had in mind, right, in a democracy, in a Republican democracy, small r, right? Uh, good people come together uh, in some form or fashion under some sort of an umbrella, reach a consensus. They elect their leaders and they work toward ideas and notions and ways that change their life and their businesses in a positive way. I think that still holds true. 
the system still works, even though there have been some hiccups along the way. I think what, what when Jason, you asked about what troubles me, and that's it, probably the same thing that troubles everybody these days, and that is it is getting harder. It is getting more and more difficult to get good policy ideas moving simply because people tend to want to line up in silos, regardless of what those silos are. And so that is a whole component of work that needs to get done oftentimes before you can start on the policy idea. You have to build a relationship, you have to build some trust, and you have to get to a point where you can have a deep and meaningful conversation about public policy before you can uh, make change. Well, Mike, that leads in really nicely to our next question, which is, why is it important for the Manhattan Chamber? So as an organization, why is it important for the Manhattan Chamber to be involved in policy discussions? Well, if you think about, if you think about Manhattan as a city and as a community, right, there, and if you think about big pictures, organizations, or systems that exist in our community, there's Fort Riley, there is the school district, there is K-State, and they are all, one way or another, government-driven entities, taxpayer-funded entities. And so I think in, in a community like ours, in a college town like ours that has a, has a military installation right down the road, it is really important for the for-profit business community to be vocal and strong. And, and if you think about systems that work in this, in this community, there's really nobody else apart from those government-driven systems that we mentioned earlier. Uh, so... So the merchant, right, the mom-and-pop shop, the, the, the individual, the, the woman or the man who have made a decision that they are going to own and operate a business and, and earn a living that way, that's our role with the chamber is to help represent them in, in, in government. And I, and I think it's really, really – you can see it on the surface in Manhattan maybe, maybe quicker than you can in other communities. So at the Chamber, we do our policy discussions through the Business Advocacy Committee. Uh, tell us a little bit more about your role on the Business Advocacy Committee and how long you've been involved. I, uh, I didn't dive under the table fast enough when it came time to pick a chairperson for the Business Advocacy Committee, and so I serve as chair. Uh, I've been on it for uh, three years. I think I've just started my, my second three-year term. It, I got on the, the, the way a lot of people get on, right? There were friends of mine who were serving. And they were they were casting about for who, who'd be a good person to serve. And an individual who's a friend of mine asked if I'd be willing. And so I went through the process. And I, I was and I'm glad I did. The committee itself is has been revamped in the last three or four years. It used to be sort of a broad, all encompassing committee that involved a lot of people. And now it's much narrower, and it is it is it is peopled by men and women who have a vested interest in whatever business they're involved with, versus uh, bringing others other voices to the table that tended oftentimes to slow down the conversations. And so, so that's my job. My role, I think, on the on the as chair is simply to chair the meetings, right, to help find the consensus and to get things going and keep us keep us on time. And of course, Mike, you're the third chair of the revamped BAC. Uh, the first chair was Lisa Sisley. Uh, second chair was Lucy Williams. And those two are the ones who really put this new group together and, and made it what it is today. Yeah, in fact, Lisa and Lucy were the friends I referred to earlier who recruited me to serve. And I've, I've known each of them for a long time, and, and I'm grateful for their willingness to think that I might have something to offer. So we've rallied our membership around community growth and economic prosperity. Uh, what is BAC doing to ensure that, that those goals are achieved? Well, uh, without getting too 
too much into the weeds. Uh, I'll mention a couple of things. We're, we're clearly involved with uh, any idea that, that, that need any economic development idea or any growth idea that needs to touch government in some form or fashion. That will come through the Business Advocacy Committee of the Chamber. And that's our role, is to try to determine what's good, how's this going to impact the membership, right? Does it need to be tweaked? And so we'll land on that answer, and then we'll develop some sort of an idea or strategy to accomplish that in whatever government entity we'll be working with, whether it's the city commission or the school board or the U.S. Congress. And so that that's our role. Uh, that's the one thing I'd mention, and that we do that as a matter of course. Uh, the other thing I'll mention is the growth task force, right? We have put together a growth task force that is chaired by uh, former state representative Tom Phillips, who you recall professionally before he became a state rep was involved in city planning and was is aware of, it's just fluent. I have a lot of respect for Tom and his, his expertise and talent when it comes to that sort of thing. And the idea for the task force is to simply try to help do two things. It's to surface ideas that will help us grow and, and, and expand jobs, but probably more important than that, and this is the, the communications pro in me, right? It's an opportunity to help communicate to the, to the community of Manhattan the need for growth. If we do not expand jobs, if we are not able to sort of figure out a way to add additional economic prosperity, then uh, the future may not, may not look too, too bright. I agree. Of course, that's what we charge Darren and his team with. Darren, talk for a minute about the connection between jobs and population growth and how important it is for if we're going to add jobs that we have enough people here to fill those jobs. Absolutely. Any of our efforts related to um, job creation or job attraction um, require a, a corresponding uh, talent component. And so whether that talent be graduating folks from Kansas State University, whether it be transitioning military um, or folks that get recruited to this area um, by by companies that are here, uh, it's vitally important that this be a place that people want to live and a place where people can see a future in their career. And so many of those uh, components are driven by things that the, that the BAC is taking a look at. And so the public policy, the decisions that are made that help facilitate that kind of growth is, is really an uh, incredibly important part of our overall economic development strategy. Yeah. And of course, Mike, one of the things BAC's tasked with now and is challenged with now is drawing the connection between the regulatory system adding cost versus uh, having a community that we want to live in. Yeah, there, there, there's no doubt. In those sorts of conversations with respect to government policy will ebb and flow depending upon who's in office, right? And so it's important for systems and, and groups like ours, the Business Advocacy Committee, to understand who's in charge, right? Who's got the juice? Who's who's helping to drive some of these sorts of different policies, whether they're administrative or whether they're ordinance or statute or whatever. And so that's something clearly that as a system that exists to advocate on behalf of for-profit businesses, then we clearly have to keep our finger on that pulse and make sure that if there's something that government at any level is proposing that we find onerous, we sit down with those folks and have a conversation and say, here's how this is impacting Main Street businesses in Manhattan, Kansas. And, and you just touched briefly on it. It's not a situation where we can focus on just city hall or just county or just state. It's we have to pay attention to all levels. Yeah. If, I mean, if you think about it, it's like you do an inventory of, of the governments that impact your life, right? There is the United States Congress, right? There is the, the president's administration and all of his or her uh, government agencies at the federal level. 
at the state level, of course, there's the legislature. There's a whole series of regulatory functions that they're involved with. Uh, the, the governor and his or her administration will have agencies that need to be dealt with. Uh, and then you get locally there, of course, is here in Riley County, the county commission in 105 counties. And we deal with the, the Riley County Commission, the Pot County Commission, the Geary County Commission. The city governing board is also key. And it's also important to mention school boards, right? It goes all the way down to, to in some communities, cemetery boards and library boards. And it, there are taxing components, right? There are, there are Each of these systems have some sort of a, in addition to a regulatory responsibility, they all have taxing authority. And that, that gets pretty important really fast in a system like ours where we're trying to find that balance. So a few years ago, we had a full 30-page, I guess, book on policy positions. We narrowed that down to one page last year, so core policies. And I would encourage all of our members to go online and check that out. And if you have suggestions, let us know, let Mike know, um, and we can take that up. So uh, in terms of our state efforts, one of the unique opportunities and and organizations that we have is METAL, which which stands for Manhattan Emporia Topeka Lawrence. So real creative in that scenario. But (laughs) talk about what METAL is and and why it's important and and a little bit about, because you have a state government hat. Talk about its uniqueness in terms of of lobbying in Topeka. Yeah. If you you think about uh, Topeka and lobbying and working in in that venue with with whomever is governor and, and the 165 elected state legislators, right? There, there's no shortage of people who want to get in front of them, right? Kansas Farm Bureau among them. That's part, that's a huge part of our job is to lobby on behalf of family farmers and ranchers. So we have a whole component of our work that's involved with that. But when you think about it from a chamber perspective, right, it, it, it makes sense for like-minded and like-sized communities to come together, right? And so that's what has happened with Manhattan, Emporia, Topeka, and Lawrence, right? Each of those communities have something in common, right? Not the least of which is a public university, right? So that's a huge component of it. There are a host of host of issues that we have in common. Transportation is another one. We all want to make sure that the infrastructure is in place to allow for economic success. And so METAL, Manhattan, Emporia, Topeka, Lawrence, has come together, and we are able to function in a a collaborative way uh, that that will perhaps bring more oomph or more, more power or more influence or a louder voice to some conversations than if it was just us doing it by ourselves or Emporia doing it by themselves, as an example. Well, and it also gives you representatives from both parties. Absolutely. Uh, which, which I think is very helpful in that conversation. So, Mike, thank you for taking time to join us today. I know you're really busy person. Is there anything as we close that that you want to talk about in terms of your experience with the chamber or experience with BAC? I think I'll just wrap up by saying this, and it kind of goes to what something I mentioned earlier, right? There's really no other system in this community that has the infrastructure, the human resources, the financial resources, the clout, the influence than the Manhattan Area Chamber of Commerce, right? And if you think about why it exists, it is here to represent for-profit businesses, individuals, families, men and women who have made a decision that this is how they are going to earn a living and serve their community. And so from that perspective, if, if, if there, and I know there are, right, because we all know them, there's a lot of people who own businesses that may not be active in the community. I guess my, my thought and advice would be get active, right? Find a way to, to plug yourself into this system because we do really good things on behalf of really good people and it works. Thank you, Mike. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Mike. Thank you. 
The Think MHK podcast is brought to you by the Manhattan Area Chamber of Commerce. Don't forget to subscribe and like the Think MHK podcast on your preferred podcast provider, and you will never risk missing an episode. If you enjoyed our show, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. To find out more about today's topic or other chamber activities, please go to manhattan.org. And now back to today's show. My co-host for this segment is Karen Hibbert. Hey, Karen. Hey, Jason. It's good to see you today. Good to be here. Hey, I want to introduce to you today, uh, we will be visiting with Chris Gergeny. He's the executive director for the Midwest Dream Car Collection. Chris, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me here. I appreciate it. You bet. Chris, you recently have moved to Manhattan. Uh, Could you talk about how uh, your journey has brought you to Manhattan, Kansas, and why the Midwest Dream Car uh, Museum? Sure. Um... I finished my three degrees, including a master's in political science at University of Illinois at Springfield. After that, you could either work at Kohl's or work for the state government, but I chose going to commercial insurance. That led me to an unknown career in not-for-profit management, and from there I've worked for several and ran several organizations around the Illinois and around the country now that have just led progressively to different not-for-profits, and that led me here to Manhattan with the car collection. That's great. And certainly, as you've come back home, Illinois is not that far away from, mm-hmm. from Kansas. Um, share with us a little bit about uh, your impressions of Manhattan, Kansas, and, and your opportunity here at the Midwest Dream Car. Um, absolutely love it. It's, it's great to be home among agricultural folk again. Manhattan has a well-earned reputation for friendliness and openness. Uh, the people here have been phenomenal, very welcoming and to me and my family. We've had a great time getting to meet some people and moving around. I will say that I don't think I've ever been in a friendlier Walmart than the one here in Manhattan. (laughs) Shockingly so in some ways, but it's just a great community that really speaks to us because of our background. Well, we're thrilled that you're a part of our community, and we're very excited about uh, your vision and your opportunity to really help us uh, continue to put Manhattan on the map. As you have been at the Midwest Dream Car Museum, share with us some of, about some of the exhibits that mm-hmm. are there and possibly some that are your favorite. We, we have an average of 65 vehicles on open display to the public at any given time. We have a few out in the, in the open area, the, the lobby on the carpet that people get to experience more closely. Uh, there's a 51 Ford setting there that, that kids and adults can set in and experience that way, not just stand back and look. Um, that's one of the founding principles of our museum versus other car museums is that we want it to be much more experiential. The cars aren't heavily roped off. There's no glass between you and them. They're not parked touching each other, so you can't get near them. Ours are open, and and you can get around them and really experience the vehicle. We've got everything from a 1907 Ford Model R, which predates the Model T and the Model A. From there up through a a 2019 Copo Camaro Dragster that's factory-built, we have a Ford GT. We have an Amphicar from 1966 that's going to be on display for a long time. We actually drove it into the the river pond about 20 times one evening, shocking a whole bunch of people. <laughs> How fun. So, Chris, uh, first of all, welcome mm-hmm. to Manhattan. Thank As you. a recently relocated transplant to the community, I share uh, your, your positive views on Manhattan. Uh, it is a particularly friendly place, and I know when I moved here, I had several people say, oh, you're getting to move back to Manhappiness, right? That's kind of what, what we're known for. Um, talk about the history of the car museum and how you got started and how that all came about. The, the museum started out as a private collection originally from Warden Brenda Morgan. Um, they acquired a number of cars and they decided they wanted to be able to share them with the public and, and make it an educational 
experience and a, and a life experience in a lot of ways that you don't get anywhere else. To that end, they set up the Midwest Dream Car Collection. We're a 501c3 not-for-profit charitable organization that we're a separate organization from Ward and Brenda. they very generous donors and, and supporters of the museum, but don't, they're not on my board uh, voting. They're not owners of the building or, or the museum itself, but they're, they're always in our hearts and minds because of all they do for the museum and have done for us. But their dream took us to where we are today as an educational not-for-profit. And of course, the Morgans are massive friends of Manhattan and have massive done so friends many, of the entire community. So many things in this community, and we appreciate their generosity. So, do the exhibits rotate? Are there some that are there permanently? Do you get some temporary exhibits in? How how does that work? All of the above. Um, we've probably got ten of our own vehicles in the back. I've got five back there that have never seen the floor as of right now. Uh, three of those will be coming out shortly. We do a rotation every three to six months of our vehicles plus loaners. We've got four new loaners in that'll be hitting the floor in the next three weeks. Some of ours will come out, some will go away, and others will be moved around. So there's, there's always something new to see. If you come back for different events and things, we've got different vehicles out or, or looking for specific loaners. And where do you get loaners from, typically? All over the place. Uh, Doug Malone, who's my curator and director of vehicle operations, has connections with a number of collectors and car clubs and organizations that, you know, hey, are you interested in displaying this? People love us, especially during the winter. That's the easiest time to get cars because they get to show off their car. It gets stored for free, and it's a great relationship and opportunity for them and for the museum. But we look for certain things, try and keep different periods to make sure we've got the whole story. We never have just all of one type. We've got everything from hot rods to classics to modern, and we're, we're always looking for new things, whether it's the latest in the in the tuners, the, the Nissan R32s, R34s that we don't see in the skylines here in the States. It could be a Maxwell or an EMF from the 20s or something from the 50s. We've got several muscle cars in right now that'll be in the next rotation. Doug just does a great job of, of looking over the vehicles and researching them before we say, yes, we'd love to put that on display to make sure that it's a good representative of, of what it is. We, we want a period correct vehicle. If it's saying it's a 67 Barracuda, we want it to be a good 67 Barracuda. If it's something that's been modified or customized, we just need to make sure that everything you know fits the narrative well. Is there one that you find is the most popular among your guests? Yes. They're the two most popular are the Lamborghini Aventador. It's a 2014 that was owned by Mario Andretti, the world-famous race car driver. Um, he signed it, please take care of my car, Mario Andretti. And so that's really special, and everybody wants to see and be around that car. It's rare. For a modern car, it's quite a rare one. The other one right now is our 51 Hudson Hornet. And because of the movie Cars, where Doc was a 50s Hudson Hornet, because of the kids' attachment to those movies, although they are startlingly old now, <laughs> it's hard to believe they were that many years ago, um, people love to see it, you know, get an experience around that car because it's they've got a movie tied to it with their kids and themselves. And, and my kids love the dancing Tesla. Absolutely. Our Tesla X, 2018 Tesla X, is a great car for people to watch. And you have Sunny and Cher. Yes, we do. Sunny and Cher's 66 Mustangs. They were customized by world-famous customizer George Barris in California. You know, the thing that I find very interesting about the museum is you don't necessarily have to be a car buff to learn something, to experience something. It, it really, truly is a, an attraction that's pretty much for everyone. We, we shock a lot of people when they come in and, I'm not a car buff, and then we let them see something that has some meaning to them. One of the cars that speaks to a lot of people is the 81 DeLorean 
because of the movie Back to the Future, everybody remembers that car. And so for people to be able to see it and, and you know, everybody has to ask where the flux capacitor is and, and what, what, what happens if you hit 88 miles an hour in it and all that good stuff. And I have to unfortunately tell them that car probably won't do 88 miles an hour even out of the factory, but you know, they had to soup it up for the movie. There really, there really is a lot of pop, pop culture as much as there is car Absolutely. Culture. One of the most popular questions I hear is, can you take any of the cars for a spin? Can I take any of the can cars anyone, for a spin? Can anybody, can you, can you rent any of the cars? We do not rent to the public. Okay. What we do on a limited basis is allow ride-alongs. Uh, in support of the Fit Closet here this mm-hmm. summer, we did a school supply drive and gave away three ride-alongs. One in the Ferrari, and two of them ended up in the Hudson. So that's something we do on a very limited, very special basis. We'll, we'll do another one probably this winter and wait till the good weather to let people get out in the cars. We don't want to, we don't want to wreck. We don't want somebody freezing to death in a convertible in the winter here. So you know, we'll wait for a good time to do that. In April last year, we had five of the vehicles out in the parking lot giving free parking lot rides. That was for our second anniversary. And for our third anniversary, we we're planning on doing something like that, which will give people a chance to sign a waiver, come take a lap around the parking lot with us and, and get an experience. Last year, it was the Hudson Hornet, the Tesla X, the Lamborghini Aventador, the Ford GT, and the 458 Italia Ferrari that we had out there. No clue what we'll choose for next yeah. year and so, no guarantees. So it's a good reminder. You all have events from time to time. Where can you find out about events that are going on at the museum? midweststreamcarcollection.org or you can go to our Facebook page and follow us. That's a great place to find us. Chris, we talked a little bit about you being fairly new to Manhattan. Mm -hmm. Share with us a little bit about what your experience has been like in Manhattan as you've become a resident, Mm -hmm. both with the the museum and as a new new resident. With the museum, it's been fabulous. My my team there is top-notch. I can't say enough about that. In previous jobs, I've come in as kind of a rescuer for organizations in trouble, and that is not the case here at all. We've got a great board that's really supportive and and has their mind and eyes set on the right things. My staff is dedicated. I'm dedicated to making the museum successful and and a, a permanent big part of the tourism scene here in Manhattan. And, you know, that's why we keep changing things up. We That's why we bought five new cars in the last three months. As far as being in Manhattan itself, I know one of the biggest complaints around here is the road work. Let me set you all straight on a couple things. Having moved from Louisiana and been from Illinois, the road work around here is wonderful. (laughs) They're accomplishing something. Road work in Illinois and Louisiana doesn't accomplish anything. It stops traffic for months. It's just as bad within a week or two of them finishing as it was before they started on it. I love the construction around here. It shows a community that has pride. You know, everybody's working to make the downtown and Aggieville and, and the whole area look good, stay clean. You know, it's a great town for that. It puts really good message out there and makes it much easier to sell tourism and sell visitors to the community. You've said that well, pride and progress and yep. uh, progression. That's very important. As you now represent the Midwest Dream Car mm-hmm. Museum, um, how do you believe the facility truly fits into Manhattan's tourism sector? Very centrally. There, there are so many groups and organizations, and I'm meeting with as many of them as I can, like the Flint Hills Discovery Center. None of us in that sector are competitors. You know, whether it's Riley County Museum or Flint Hills Discovery Center, us, we're all 
need to be self-supporting each other and that's something we're all working very closely with and, and towards as i meet with people is getting the message out what can we do to partner and help you get your message out and what we what can you do in return it's a great way to go if the community's not fighting each other it can only grow and and tourism is vital to any town especially a college town but it's vital to the community it brings in the bed tax it keeps things funded in the community and we're thrilled to be a part of that so one of the things that happened this year is you all were selected as a finalist for the tourism award at the at mm-hmm. the chamber annual award luncheon so talk about your reaction and maybe the reaction of of your board and your and your staff to being selected as a finalist for that it was extremely honoring to the to the museum it it says we're right on the right path in a lot of respects um that we're doing things that the community is starting to notice and and to recognize i i came here after that decision had been made i can't take any credit for that my predecessor and our staff have done phenomenally well our board has guided the group well so they they get all the glory or the recognition for that i just came in in time to be at at the lunch um but it, it speaks volumes of the organization I've come to, quality and, and the, the, the right men, mindset and focus. And what is something about the museum that people might not be aware? We, we have an event space that a lot of organizations, clubs, civic groups use for meetings. Businesses hold their business meetings there. It, it's wonderful for them in talking to the different business leaders that have used our facility because you can have your meeting and, and your serious educational content or business content. When you take a break, you're walking out among Packards and Mustangs and all these other cars, Cadillacs and Lincolns, and get a little bit of a break where people actually can communicate with each other. And it seems to just really relax people, um, give them the opportunity to speak a little more freely. And it's fun to watch the groups as they do because they split up around the different cars and just as they wander, have their conversations on the business. And we've taken advantage of that. And I can just say that it is something that that creates a really great environment for particularly staff retreats we've used Mm -hmm. for, but also for, we've had chamber events there. And and it's been, it's been a great space for that. And so, and it goes without saying again, how much we appreciate Ward and Brenda Morgan for their contribution to our community in in creating this facility. So um, thank you for being with us today. We are going to now have our rapid fire questions which we do with all of our visiting businesses and so when you're ready we will start are you ready absolutely okay so something people often find surprising about you i spent a year in denmark as a rotary youth exchange student between high school and college awesome was still speak danish so karen and i are both rotarians and so uh, that's that's something that's great very interested in what are three things you can't live without right now my phone and my wife and my son, I think. That's good answer. Good answers. <laughs> Best piece of advice you ever received? Best piece of advice I ever received was on management. And it was from an early manager of mine. He said, not a, only don't ever have your staff do something they don't think you would do, never ask them to do something they haven't seen you do. Oh, good advice. What is something you would like to try but you haven't had the opportunity? Skydiving. Favorite meal? Probably a Danish meatball dish called frikadeller. I've never tried that. Have you tried Easy that? for you to say, yeah, no, I've never, I've never had that. What is the biggest lesson the pandemic has taught you? I'm not as gregarious as I thought I was, that being alone wasn't necessarily a bad thing at times. <laughs> a favorite pet in, in your life? We just lost her. We had a pure black, purebred German shepherd that we lost to mouth cancer about a month and a half ago. Sorry to hear that. I know Thanks. It's always hard on, hard on families. Favorite flavor of ice cream? Butter pecan. Favorite snack? Right now, it's a trail mix. 
And this is the last question. What advice would you give the 19-year-old you? Don't be afraid to stretch yourself. Find opportunities and take advantage of things, even if they seem a little on the, the long shot or the, the risky side. Good advice. Chris, thanks for being with us today on Think MHK Podcast, and thank you uh, for your contributions to this community through your leadership at the Midwest Stream Car Collection. Thank you all. It's been a privilege to be here. Thanks for listening to this episode of Think MHK, a podcast produced by the Manhattan Area Chamber of Commerce. If you enjoyed the Think MHK podcast, we'd love for you to subscribe and share it out on your social media channels. Feel free to reach out to us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at the Manhattan Area Chamber of Commerce.